welcome back to another episode of Rules of the Arena, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. This week, sitting down with Mike uh, Fredrickson, not Facino, of Pitchfork Brewing. Uh, how's it going? Good, good. Just uh, wanted Mike to come down here um, after you kind of told your story of how you came to be growing up and everything uh, back at Pitchfork one night and convinced him with a couple bottles of whiskey to come down here. And he, you know, successful business owner of uh, Pitchfork Brewing. And if you want to talk about any of that. Oh, sure. <laughs> I, uh, well, I've, I've been self-employed for a long time. I mean, I was a self-employed painter for 13 years. So becoming, you know, working on something that was, uh, you know, being self-employed again, like I was used to it. So it's, you know, people a lot of times get really nervous about and insecure about leaving the security of having a job and a regular right. paycheck and that kind of thing. But I was pretty used to having to track people down with a, you know, <laughs> have their pen and checkbook at the same place and that kind of thing. Right. So it was not, uh, you know, not, not too crazy to hop into the, hop into the brewing part of it. But and it was when that's how I ended up meeting Mike originally up at Pitchfork Soft Opening. You were you got out of painting, and I was still in the thick of it. And I think I was up there at least three times a week asking you how to fix my problems that I screwed up. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. No, I don't. I don't miss painting at all. Yeah. Um, it's a miserable occupation. But lungs were terrible by the time I was done with it, and like took me after after about six months of like not spraying lacquer and stuff like that <laughs> that I was able to breathe again. And I was like, hey, I could actually run from here to here without you know completely losing all my breath, but. Yeah. And prior to painting, uh, you were, I know you've gone through them all, you've told us about different odd end jobs and everything. Um, but if you don't mind going back to, you know, like at Pitchfork, you kind of mentioned, you know, you really had to strike off on your own since uh, the family life wasn't, oh, yeah, it wasn't the greatest no. and you're self-motivated the whole time. Yeah, it was, you know, there was, it was... The household I grew up in was not one of any structure, you know, trailer court kid with, you know, nothing. I, I always got okay grades, but I didn't really look at school as a major priority and stuff like that. And when I decided to go to college, you know, um, was my senior year. I planned on going to college and like my mother had no clue I was going to college. Like we fought about you know, taxes and stuff like that. And I got out of the house actually at about age 17 and you know, was just, uh, was used to, you know, you realize that at some point no one's going to do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. And that's, you know, that's kind of, kind of what I did. I mean, I've, I had even back, I mean, I met my wife at 18, but great support from her always. She's always been, you know, where that replaced a family, I kind of got structure from her on some level where she was, you know, do this, maybe you should do this or whatever. And always has been, you know, I wouldn't have been able to be self-employed without her with, you know, not only the in part of the insurance and benefits, but without her support, she has always kind of blindly just said, <laughs> all right, you know, you do this. And I've always been kind of the guy that, that thinks of, you know, if you're willing to work hard at anything, you, sh you, you can be successful, you know, successful enough anyway to, you know, to be happy. And I, I much prefer working for myself than I do for other people, you know. It's, you know, if you have a work ethic and you can, you know, and you kind of focus on some stuff, you can, you can accomplish a lot. Actually, do something. Yeah. Or you know, end up in a 
two month lawsuit trying to get your money back from people that don't want to pay you. Right. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. You can't, there, there's even, you get into those kind of situations too. And you, you have to figure out that you just have to forge on and, you know, get that worked out. You just can't stop what you're doing to wait for that to work itself out. You just, you gotta, you just have to do it, you know, keep going. In high school, I remember you're talking, uh, Mr. Lewis mm-hmm. of really helping you out and helping your brother out as well. Yeah. I mean, I, by helping me out, he helped my brother out more than anything. My, my mom was, uh, well, she's deceased now, but she was, you know, pretty tied up into drugs and, and, uh, and my, my brother got, uh, my brother basically got kicked out of the house at 16. And so he went to, he was living in Hastings for a short period of time. And, uh, Mr. Lewis showed up at, uh, at my place of work one day and got me out of there and we sat down and talked and I had him quite a bit in high school and stuff. So I knew him and he, he just said, uh, you know, your brother's in a rough way. I'm like, I know, you know, I mean, he's, you know, we didn't have a great childhood, you know, and, uh, but, and, and both of us were pretty motivated to, to do things. And so he, you know, Mr. Lewis took, uh, took my brother in and made sure he graduated from high school and stuff like that. And I, you know, he would have went to prison without that kind of help, you know. So I'm very appreciative for what he did and, you know, for my brother because it was, you know, it was definitely a big game changer for him. And you mentioned there's a teacher that actually, you know, uh, bulldogged your mother. Oh, and, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. For, <laughs> coming yeah. in for teacher-parent conferences. Yeah, that was Mr. Ronning, and, he, you know, he's like uh, – He's like, where are you going to go to college and stuff like that? I mean, I was in his government class and I did some, you know, he took me aside one day and said, you know, you're, he said, you, you in a roundabout way, you know, we, we had had this, uh, this discussion about, uh, disinvestment of South Africa over apartheid. And, uh, I was, I led the disinvestment part of that and, um, and in our class and he did this for every hour and my class was the only one I was one vote away from convincing everybody that disinvestment was the right thing to do on, you know, a moral or, you know, a base, basically ethics, you know, on, on what was happening and stuff like that. And, but anyway, long story short, he's like, where are you going to go to college? You know? And I, I said, well, thinking about going to the U, you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, I can't wait to talk to your mom at conferences. You know, I said, well, good luck with that. She hasn't been to a conference <laughs> since the sixth grade, you know. And, uh, yeah, he just berated her by voicemail. I'd come home, like, almost every day, and there'd be a voicemail on there. Looking forward to seeing you, you know. And he just... <laughs> and so, yeah, she showed up, and he uh, kind of read her the riot act for being a horseshit parent for <laughs> about an hour and a half one night. And she came home, and I was like, how is that, you know? <laughs> And he was, uh, you know, she was like, well, I realize I'm a very shitty parent. And it's like, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> but, you know, that's whatever he was. But he was he was real, you know, he was a real solid, good teacher. You know, I found a lot of, you know, a lot of those a lot of those teachers were fantastic, you know, throughout growing up. Absolutely. So 17, moved out, ended up going, did you end up going to the U of M then? Uh, yeah, I went to the U of M for, for a little while. Um, there again, kind of got hosed by my mother for a little bit. We, uh, I was working at Annie's parlor, um, filled out the tax forms where we had argued about, cause I had moved out 
And I'm like, well, you shouldn't be claiming me on your taxes if I moved out. And if I'm independent, you know, and claimed independent, that was when George Bush Sr. had signed a uh, oh, sign that you had to collectively add your parents and your income up. And at that point, I was working about 40 hours a week and, you know, going to high school. And so um, and, you know, paying rent, I pay rent at home by when I was 16 you know, from 16 on, I was like, it's cheaper for me to move out of the trailer, <laughs> you know, and live with my friends than it is to live here. So, um, but yeah, so I was working at Annie's parlor and, uh, and my mother and I banked at the same bank. And so I was sending my checks home, you know, and, uh, checks to the bank. And back then it was all snail mail. You know, I didn't have any deposit slips, but it was such a small bank or whatever. Well, they were depositing my money into my mother's account. And she, it came due that I had a van payment that she had actually co-signed for and I couldn't make it because there wasn't any money in my account and the checks I was writing were bouncing. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Where's my money? You know, and uh, she had spent the money. It was like, she must have thought it was a windfall from Monopoly. <laughs> you know, not really. But she was, you know, calling me and calling me and hassling me about where this money will, you know, you got to pay, make this payment. You got to make this payment. Well, she and actually had my money at the time, so. And then after we had argued about the, you know, the tax forms or whatever, um, she filled out her part of the financial aid because she did claim me, and uh, she had lied on all of it. So by the time I, the financial aid was supposed to go through and I went in there because I got approved for Pell Grants and this kind of thing, you know, and when I went in there, they're like, oh, yeah, you're not getting anything because your mother lied on all of her tax forms. So I was like, well, so I quit going to school at the time and I had to get a job to pay for all my stuff. Never got my money back, whatever. But And what were you going to school there for? No, I was originally thinking pharmacy. Okay. Um, and then I went back to community college and got about two years under my belt, got sick of paying for it. It was all math and science stuff. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I liked learning. So that that's where the easy transition to brewing went, you know, for... For me, I, I enjoyed learning and I had the niche to want to keep learning, but I was sick of paying for it and working at the same time. And it just got to be too much. And I'm like, I looked at college as a luxury, you know, not a necessity. And so I just, I just, uh, yeah, I started learning brewing. So I, I've read 50 something brewing books and, you know, <laughs> how to, and, you know, and just dove into it, you know, and I still like it. <laughs> and I remember you talking about you were working at a Mexican restaurant, line cook. Was that during college? Was that? Um, yeah, I was. I was doing. Yeah, I was actually working at. Um, I worked at um, the San Antonio Grill. I had, I had worked at a, quite a few restaurants, and you know, when I was uh, when I was busy at high school, I'd cram you know thirty five forty hours into a, a you know Friday night to you know Friday night to. Uh, Sunday night and then, you know, hit a weekday somewhere in there or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I was, uh, I worked there. So it was, uh, I'd have to take the 16A from Minneapolis downtown, go to work, you know, and then get back on the bus. And then I'd ride my bike to the community college. You know, I went to, I went to both Lake, uh, Lakewood at what it was at that time and Minneapolis community college. So and from there, post college. Now, how did you go from wanting to go into pharmaceutical 
got into interest into brewing shortly thereafter, but then ended up painting for 13 years. Yeah, I ended up. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting actually because I, you know, I got hired as a uh, uh, hired on to Northern Brewer when it first started, so I was like the fourth person to work there. And uh, I went in and Andy uh, Grange. Can, I, I've heard the story, but if you go back on how you started working there, I thought that was really fun. Oh yeah, it, it's uh, so I, I went in there. I went in there at one point and uh, um, they were super busy and and uh, I I had been shopping there three times a week since it was my local <laughs> store and brewing all the time. And then um, I knew where everything was and said, "Would you you want me to help customers? You know." like help the customers get their stuff together. And while you just bring people up, cause this little tiny store was packed. And so I was explaining how brewing works to everybody, you know, and showing them the stuff. And this is why this is better than this and that kind of thing. And after about four and a half hours, it was all done. And he's, he's like, uh, he looked at me and he purchased all my, he's like, I've got all your ingredients. I comped all those, you know, and, uh, do you want a job? And I'm like, yeah, take a job that's way better than you know working in a restaurant you know got beer on tap and get to brew for free you know so yeah they uh you could brew on the company dime there so i was brewing constantly and didn't have to pay for any of my ingredients now is there their brewing part is that down in the basement i've only been there a few times um the small stuff they now have a, a classroom stuff. When I I taught all the classes there, uh, when that was there, and we didn't have room in that store, so I taught them out of my basement. <laughs> and so people would, it was a great gig. Uh, people would pay $25. They would come over. Northern Brewer would supply all the stuff. I got to keep all the money. It was a dozen, you know, a dozen people. I had all my printed, you know, information stuff. I gave them beer samples and gave them some snacks and, I made 10 gallons of beer and I had a lot of company and yeah, those were great gigs. So it was, that was good. But yeah, we, uh, and then when I, when I transitioned into painting that ended up cause Michael Dawson and I were, uh, Chris Farley, who was the original owner of Northern Brewers now recently, uh, been let go by, well, not necessarily let go, but, uh, anyway, he was since, anheuser-busch purchased them um he was still he was still 40 percent owner and still working there and then when they got purchased he was just sliding under the radar and still working there and i'm like <laughs> i can't believe they haven't fired him yet you know like they haven't figured out that he was like the original owner and they're still paying him off um but eventually he got uh he got let go but prior to that he was uh looking to get out of you know of the homebrewing business and he was going to take a job in networking in Utica, New York. And he had put out this proposal that Mike Dawson and I would take over the store. So he and I were going to be partners. And we ended up running Northern Brewer, you know, almost exclusively for six months, you know, on our own. Because, you know, and Chris was, you know, we were managing most everything anyway. But uh, and then his job fell through. and He came back and he said, well, do you want to be? three-way partners in this deal instead of you two, you know, taking over it. And that's when I left. I'm like, I don't want to be three, three-way partners in the, in a small business. You right. know, I'm like, it's yeah, partners are hard. It always is. I mean, and it's, you know, three partners, holy crap, <laughs> you know, three. Yeah, I can't imagine. I know the, not, is it Lolo's? They have a board or whatever oh, yeah. to help, you know, try to, 
And I mean, granted, they put out great food and everything, and they—I know they—they just did a wine bar in their Stillwater location. Mm-hmm. But I mean, trying to ma- wrangle that many cooks in one kitchen, I can't oh. imagine. You ever painted for a church? <laughs> no, thankfully. Oh wow! Yeah, that's. Uh, uh, but I've been on the the retail side of that, and that's bad enough. I have uh, I have had to uh, I I've painted quite a few churches. Instantly, the price goes up. Because I'm like, there is 18 of you making decisions, you know, and then you got the oldest members of the church coming in and this is not how I wanted this. <laughs> and you're just like, all right, I'll put everything down. Let's go get Chuck and see what he has to say, you know, and I'm just, we need this done by Christmas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's too many, too many, sh- you know, chefs in the kitchen. It's right. Just. Oh, but from Northern Brewery, you got out of that. And is that when you became a beer judge? Um, I was, yeah, I was a beer judge. Uh, and I became a beer judge at Northern Brewer um, when I was working there, uh, all out of spite. Uh, <laughs> there was a guy who came in that said I was not qualified to taste his beer and tell him what was wrong with it. And I was like, <laughs> really? All right. And so, so that pissed me off. And so then uh, the, the BJCP exam was coming up and, uh, and so I decided to study and take it. So Mike Dawson and I took it at the same time. So we became beer judges in, in 1997. So what is the BJCP? It's beer judge certification program. It's uh, the test is way different now. It's a lot easier to pass the written than it was back then, and people bomb out at the tastings now. So uh, back then it used to be I think there was 58 recognized styles at the time, and you had to know everything about each style. You know, from history, water composition, you know, how the style developed, all of that stuff. And then be able to, you know, you would have a question would be, you know, define and, you know, differentiate between a, you know, uh, or what makes a North German Pilsner, you know, and you'd have to talk about the water composition, you know, history go through, you'd have to know all the numbers of the starting ABV or starting gravities, you know, SRM, IBUs. You know what what makes it you know all of that uh, commercial examples of it. So each there's ten questions on them. The one thing you knew was how does the BJCP work? That's always on every exam. The other nine were just you know random questions. And if you were under a page, you weren't gonna get it right. And so that was three and a half hour exam uh, timed, and then uh, you had five tastings, and you had to be within a certain point total of judging these beers uh, with the judges and be able to, you know, they have the intentional infections so they could drop a little bit of that, tell you, you know, then you'd have to tell them well, where that would come from, why it was there, something in the brewing process that should be changed. Which we actually did that on Department of Defense. How many weeks? Was that a month? Uh, I think that was a two months ago, I think. Yeah, I two months. Say. Yeah. If you guys want to go check that out. That's, that was actually really fascinating oh, for me. You, you because, learn a ton. Yeah. I mean... And I, for me, I had the only thing going in, working at Pitchfork Brewing uh, as just a beer tender, uh, going into that, the only thing I knew about beer is that it came in a glass or a can or bottle. Right. And, you know, listening to you do the tour, you know, probably a hundred times over by now, started to pick up on a few things, but still learning, but then able to, you know, t- you know have those infections and actually be able to recognize them yeah. helps a lot. Uh, yeah. In, in 1997, it was... You know, I had to print off this study guide, which was an entire three-ring binder. I mean, by far, hands down, it's the hardest test I ever took, you know, including everything school-related, you know. Um, 
but yeah, it, it was, uh, it's, it's hard to test a lot of crap to memorize. <laughs> did you ever get a second chance with, the, to, to rate that guy's beer? Uh, I did actually, <laughs> uh, he, he came in later and he didn't bring any beer to sample, but I was like, Oh, by the way, I, uh, I'm official beer judge now. So, you know, you don't have to snub me the next time you bring in something that needs to be tasted. But. And I apologize, uh, everyone, if you're listening. Uh, Carlos is filling in for Casey today, sitting yeah. at the soundboard yeah. for me today. So, Carlos, thank you. Yeah, no problem. And from Mike, going from, it was, you know, he went to Beer Judge, he left Northern Brewer. Did you continue in the Beer Judge world? Or um, did you? What I, I started a homebrew club. Um, that's kind of how, uh, that's kind of how Pitchfork sort of got started. Uh, the Wisconsin Department of Revenue was starting to enforce a pre-prohibition law that said you couldn't take your homebrew off your property. So, you know, that with having a club and other, you know, larger clubs around that, that meant that it was illegal for them to take them to, you know, the, the way that the law was being enforced or standing, like you could bring it into a class B liquor license or establishment as long as the owners were okay with it, you know, sit down, sample your wares, you know, you always treat the establishment well, obviously, you know, or banquet, but uh, that made it illegal. And there's, there's some clubs out there that are 300 members strong that send people to brewing school, donate to charities, all these kinds of things, you know, do good things, you know, and, uh, and they were trying to say that you couldn't take your homebrew and pass it over a fence. And it all started with uh, giving out samples at a um, beer event is where they shut down the beer event in Racine. And that's where this all started because of the, the homebrew supply shop was out there and, you know, had set up something actively fermenting and, you know, showing how this all works and how you could brew at home. So, and they, they, they try to mess with it on a regular basis. You know, it's the tavern league that we end up kind of, you know, butting heads with as homebrewers a little bit and I, and, and as craft brewers, you know, about the, the legislation, they try to, you know, unfortunately the way that they look at it, they say, Oh, well, you know, home brewers turn into craft brewers, you know, my case, yeah. you know, kind of the same thing. And like, we want less of those, you know, so whatever we can do to kind of stiffen that up. But man, I know I've raised hell with our representatives last few times that legislation has been coming down the pipeline. Yeah, and it's crazy legislation, too, of the stuff that they try to do. You know, we fortunately for us, we, you know, we formed all the presidents uh, who had the club presidents in Wisconsin formed the Wisconsin Homebrewing Alliance. We had in a couple of we had a couple of attorneys. So, you know, we uh, with the attorneys mostly, you know, doing it. But we, you know, put input in, read, read everything, thousand emails later, back and forth. We, you know, went down, we testified in front of the Senate and, you know, got this uh, grassroots, got our got our bill basically passed. You know, there was some tavern league interference, obviously, Scott Fitzgerald, um Scott Fitzgerald, the night before the Senate was going to vote on it, uh, basically stapled an amendment drafted by the Tavern League to our bill undoing everything that we were trying to do. So they had to have a quick little caucus and throw that out. So it was like 32 to 1, the vote was, you know, to for our bill to go through. And then it wasn't getting presented in the House. Um, Jeff Fitzgerald, weird, uh, <laughs> was uh, was the House Assembly guy responsible for presenting it and 
after it wasn't getting presented, wasn't getting presented, they finally uh, finally contacted him, got to the gist of it, and said, I need you to uh, to negotiate with the Tavern League or I will not present this. And so we had to negotiate with a lobbying group before they would accept it. They put two useless amendments on it. We are like, fine, whatever, you know. But it was days before dying, you know because it was sitting there for so long and they weren't presenting it. So got passed. That actually got signed on my birthday, April 2nd. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> so I had some beer. <laughs> now, the the pre- pre-prohibition bill you're talking about, mm-hmm. is Wisconsin still trying to enforce that, or that pretty um, much get taken off the books with your that's bill? That kind of got squashed. We What we did is redefine that. So when they they wrote it, uh, the first time it was very loosely termed. And so basically what they did is went in there and put their own interpretation to it. And then we're trying to point it out with their point of view. And that's how they, that's how they kind of got that, you know, the Wisconsin department of revenue, um, they enforced that. So they had enough pull in there to say, this is the way we're reading this law. You know, and this is the way you should be enforcing it. And they're like, well, okay, you know, and so then they did. And then so it pretty much ended that. But there's there's a lot of the same kind of laws that are still on the books across the United States. So I think Minnesota just recently went through the same kind of thing. Yeah, they were. Um, I I, I don't want to use wrong verbiage. um, Upping the limit or so on the Surly law. If I read that correctly, I saw this is a quick little article that was put out by a few of the legislators over in Minnesota. Well, that was uh, so the some of the stuff on the Surly Law. Yeah, they to do growlers, um, they had they used to have a maximum limit that you would brew in a year. So I remember there was one year that Fulton actually shut down for a month because they were about to max or exceed the amount that they were allowed to brew that year to actually still sell growlers out of their establishment. So they, they shut down for a month um, the brewing production and just kind of coasted with their product until the next month, and then they started back up. Um, Surly completely overlooked that. Um, when they did that, they were assuming that they could do growlers, but then realized later that they had a limit on the size of the facility and so or the amount of beer production, and they exceeded that, so they weren't able to sell growlers. They can't do it. Man, I've I've heard stories that surly growlers are not worth quite a bit of money since. Oh yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. they don't produce them anymore. So if anybody's here listening to this and you have a surly growler, I'll give you a buck fifty for it. Right. <laughs> don't recycle it. <laughs> right. I don't yeah. think you can recycle them anyway. I'm not sure. I don't think you can. Probably yeah. Uh, and then, so you go from running your uh, homebrew club. Uh, getting legislation passed. Uh, was it during that you were still painting, or was this? Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, I was still painting. the uh, The whole brewery thing came about because I was in the paper a whole bunch for the, you know, and Sarah and Jason, uh, my original partners, um, saw me in the paper. were talking about it, and they wanted to start some other business, um, you know, aside from what they were doing. So they contacted me. Um, we had a lot of friends of friends. They'd had my beer a whole bunch of times, you know, and we're like, oh, your beer's good, you know, and, you know, we want to start a brewery, but we need a brewer. <laughs> kind of so, helps. Yeah, and my wife is, you know, I talked to my wife about it, and she's like, yep, do it. 
<laughs> you know, that's kind of how she is. She just, yep, let's do this, you know. So I'm more nervous and apprehensive than she is half the time about it. What? We would never call you Frugelson. No, right? <laughs> no. And as I said, uh, it was uh, July 27th. I actually came up on my Facebook uh, of 13, 2013 is when you did your soft opening of, and you know, at that, and at that point I did not drink beer at all. Um, I pretty much hard liquor because I never found anything that I liked. And my, my old roommate, Kevin talked me into coming up there when he was still working next door and he goes, Oh, just come on. I'll, I'll, it's two free beers and I'll buy you lunch. I'm like, fine, whatever. Okay. And I remember I had your American Gothic and the, um, the smoky Scottish. Mm-hmm. Right? I think it was just the Scottish this all. I don't think you yeah, that one. Yeah, it probably wasn't the smoke. I didn't do the smoke till later. Yeah, and I had both of those beers, and of course they're in the neighborhood of 7 or 8% both, and yeah. I had two of them in under 20 minutes go, oh, this is different. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably eat something. <laughs> and then couldn't get rid of me after that. I've had, uh, that's happened so many times. I, I used to brew our, uh, so our outwitted is originally derived from a beer that was 13 percent that was coriander orange peel belgian triple that i'd set aside and i'd age it for a year and so um when we found out i had made this batch of i had made this batch of beer and i found out i was uh that we were pregnant with my my first daughter and i'm like i'm not gonna you know this will be a year you know so i'm not gonna drink these until you know until we uh uh until the baby's born and uh and so left the hospital you know, after she was born, went home and cracked one. And the neighbor guy came by and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, you want a beer? He's like, oh, do you have that, you know, and do you have the baby? And I'm like, yep. You know? And so he sat down and each had a bomber of this that I had champagne, you know, <laughs> had champagne corked and, you know, gave it to him, gave him a nice Belgian glass, you know, and he put it down pretty quick and, uh, and it was 13%. He put this thing down pretty quick, and then he got up to. Fortunately, our deck was very low, but he got up and stumbled right out off the deck <laughs> into the yard, you know. And I'm like, ah, yeah, it's 13, percent you know, you know. And he was just like, Coors Light Crusher, you know. <laughs> he it caught him a little off guard. So, yeah, it's good entertainment sometimes <laughs> to watch watch people. I had a I had a Somali guy that uh, came to came to my place one time and it was I had a scotch ale that was you know it was eight and a half percent and he was over there and he was a regular at the bar and he he cabbed everywhere you know so he came over he's like I want to try your beer you know at home or whatever and so he comes over and man he was crushing scotch ales <laughs> and so and uh he, he was really wobbly when he got out of there and I get a call from uh you know, the, the restaurant I was working at at the time, because he ended up back there, like, what the hell did you do to him? <laughs> and I'm like, he drank a lot of Scotch Ale really fast. I had, you know, some, like, the taps are right there. Just have at it, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you, so you started Pitchfork Brewing. You're five years into that now. Um, ups, downs, challenges that you've come across going from brewing out of the stall of your garage? Um, you know, oh... Challenges wise, um, you know, partners are always hard, you know, knowing where everybody's at and what everybody's thinking at the time. Um, you know, uh, other challenges is, uh, you know, I've got 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag there, you know, so there's like, I'm limited, you know, I've got 13 fermenters. I'm turning them out, you know, pretty quick, you know, back and back and forth. And it's, 
you know, there's always challenges of like figuring out the brew schedule, balancing what should be on tap versus, you know, I get a lot of requests for a lot of different beers and that kind of thing. So those are, that's like always kind of challenging. Barrel aged rocket fuel? Right. That's all we need. Hey, come on. Um, Just one year. Right. Well, I, I, I yeah. No, I. Steve Drost, uh, if you're listening. Right. <laughs> I had, uh, had a lot of people, uh, probably had six people ask for French toast in the last two weeks. You know, so there's. Yeah, there's actually, also, um, I found, so I was, my beer fridge broke and I was transferring my stock and I completely forgot that I had a growler of French, French toast. toast. Yeah, so six months later, I cracked it open. Still just as good as the day it was brewed. Huh. Yeah, that was, uh, usually make that one a little bigger. So it's, it, should hold up pretty good mm-hmm. in, a, in a growler. Still my favorite, and I know you don't like the mixing of beers, but I did a uh, <laughs> did a blacksmith of your maple lager and French toast once. Oh, sure. And that was just, it was breakfast in a glass. It was fantastic. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the blending of beers. It's not the way I made them to be consumed, but people still do it when I'm my back is turned. What? That would never happen. No. I know yeah. my uh, my brother's actually a big friend of fan of the French toast. I've gotten him like a growler of that for his birthday, but he's in the military, so like he's not always around when you guys have it. Sure. Yeah. What's yeah. a what's the ABV usually on, on the French, French toast? toast? It's in the seven range. Seven. Could yeah. you bump that up into double digit and do a bottle? Well, you release? can. You can always bump it up. Why? Well, I don't yeah. brew. Not yet. Oh, yeah, you, you can bump it up. Yeah, We're starting to pour beer at Pitchfork. I told myself I was never going to actually brew beer. And then this last year for Christmas, my mom found a picture of my great-grandpa, his brother and friend, the three of them standing in the weeds of northern Wisconsin, you know, after homebrewing dur- during Prohibition. It's like, yeah. oh, f- yeah, fine. It's genetics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll try it. Why not? Yeah. We'll give it a shot, maybe someday. It's fun. It's rewarding. I mean, they're really... Out of all the hobbies that are out there, it's uh, it's kind of limitless in the sense that, you know, the creativity, the 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 science, you know, there's the nerdery, there's the there's the gadgets, there's the artistry, there's it kind of has everything, you know, and the fact that, you know, when you're done, you're consuming something that is, you know, that you've created that you like, you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I. I drink a lot of other people's beers too, but I find a lot of comfort in my own beers because it's just like this is my recipe. This is what I'm familiar with, you know. So, and did you ever have an aha moment of where you decided, I yes, I want to try brewing at home? I mean, or did it just oh, kind of? Oh, that was it. Really a, early. Was um, it a slow burn? Boy, it was. Um, because I suppose you know for craft beer it was nineteen and Summit Great Northern Porter for me. I got a Summit Great Northern Porter and I was like, Oh, this is money. You know, I I really like this and then we got it on tap at the restaurants. All the restaurants that I worked at, I was a pretty good cook and that kind of thing, so they valued me and <laughs> they allowed me to drink underage at the bar <laughs> on a regular basis. So, um and we always had summer products on, so I always I, you know, drank a lot of uh porter bartender friend of mine rest in peace uh was um uh homebrewing at the time and so he was turning out stuff that was okay and i was like yeah you know with my 
you know, with just cooking for so long, it was an easy transition to get into the brewing part. Yeah, sanitation. Okay, yeah, I get, you know, I get it, you know. And so I was able to start turning out pretty good beer um, right off the bat. And that was when I worked at Northern Brewer, a big reason that I think we were so successful on the get go is all the individual effort that went into it. So I, w- I would actually go to people's house if they were doing their first beer to help them brew, get them on the right track so they were successful the first time because then I'd know they'd come back and stay with the hobby. If they, you know, for most people who homebrew, if they fail the first time, they won't do it again, you know, because it's like I spent all this money on this and yeah. it just sucks. You know. What would you say is the so somebody listening to this podcast out there, they're kind of on the fence of homebrewing. I mean, how much of a financial investment are they looking at? Oh, for that you can first do it. Batch? You can do it pretty cheap if you're, you know. Um, unfortunately, you can't get really inexpensive with it until you already have fully committed, you know, into everything with it. But um, you know, park dollar amount. Uh, boy, you know, probably a hundred and fifty bucks. You can have beer in a fermenter with not horrible equipment, you know. Just gonna um, put this out there. Uh, I think it's Mister Beer. Don't trust that. Yeah, don't. Do no. That. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah. We we sold that when I worked for J.C. Penney's for. Uh, <laughs> I was there for five years, and I think two of the Christmas seasons in a row we sold that kit. And people like, oh, this looks really cool. I'm like, yeah, okay. I, maybe it's just me and my distrust of big box stores. But. but at my at my peak when I you know so I've got I've got twenty four hot plants. Uh, in my backyard and I would harvest them and that would make up about 80% of my, you know, my hop crop that year. I was buying all my, my grain by the sack and stuff. So when I'd figured out and I'd use, I guess, when I would use, uh, yeast, uh, reuse my generations of yeast and keep those going and stuff like that, I had beer down to about 30 cents a pint, you know, which is pretty cheap, you know, I mean, I have a question. When you were homebrewing, like, what was the biggest like disaster you came across? Like, <laughs> most heartbreaking uh, would have been when fifteen years into homebrewing, my Johnson Control stat uh, died, and I had eight uh, eight loggers in a chest freezer, mm-hmm. and I came home to shattered glass, slush, beer slushy all over the place. Fortunately, I had figured out that everything is way better on wheels. <laughs> and so I rolled everything out to the driveway and pulled the pin and shed a tear and watched it all roll away. Um, yeah, that's, you know, um, probably one of the worst disasters that I'd heard of were the Northern Brewer customers that came in made root beer at home on their white carpeting, put them all in bottles, left it at room temperature, and then left for vacation for a couple weeks. So every single bottle had exploded on their white carpeting and flooded their uh, living room. What what would cause that? Well, yeast just going on the, on the sugar. So when you... You know, when I make root beer at the, you know, at the brewery, I force carbonate it, so there's no active yeast in there. But if you're doing it at home... Um, I always recommend two liter bottles and going, you know, straight into a fridge, you know, rather than glass that becomes shrapnel when it when it gets going. But I think, uh, I think anybody who gets into home brewing, like uh, if you homebrew long enough, you're going to come across a disaster. Too. Oh yeah, if yeah. you're you're not a home brewer unless you're mopping shit off the ceiling, 
<laughs> I mean, it just it well, happens. Carlos, do you get much into Homebrew Bound? Uh, I haven't been on Homebrew Bound for a while, but like I'm generally around here helping clean up the messes when they gotcha. uh, happen. Like some of them, some, some sometimes sometimes it's Casey. Sometimes I'll come down here. It's like oh. I guess there's a giant pole of beer coming from the keg grader. I guess I'm mopping now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, those are fun, too. Which, uh, for anybody listening, blindninjastudios.com, where you find this podcast, uh, they do have a really cool one called uh, Homebrew Bound. And the show prior to this is that we recorded is Department of Defense. Uh, but uh, Homebrew Bound I started listening to because, like I said, I knew nothing about beer prior to Pitchwork opening up and me going there and spending way too much time and slowly but surely kind of gaining interest and then when I'm never going to brew till okay maybe I'll try something someday <laughs> yeah i mean it's a uh, i mean i i got to a point like where you know okay 5 gallons is what i started well that's not enough so i moved to 10 gallons and then i was like yeah 15's better then i went to 20 you know especially when i had kids it was like trying to find the time so i'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and go out, brew, and then I'd be done by noon if it was going to be a family day where we were going to do something, you know, kind of thing. So I'd find time to do that, and then I could do 20 gallons, and then I would have, you know, enough beer so I could brew in these spurts and, you know, keep myself in beer for, for quite a while. But Wait, what time did you start brewing for that stuff, like 20 gallons? Yeah, I started doing, um, oh, boy, I was, by the time I left Northern Brewer after six years, I was at 20 gallons of brewing. Like uh, um, would that be like a single batch or like was it yeah single be, batch yeah yeah single batch sometimes I'd subdivide it into you know experiment with yeast or you know dry hopping or whatever you know kind of subdivide some of that stuff because it was what, fun but so like of like the was it like uh like several pots of like five gallons or like did you just have like one twenty well, I just have I have two twenty five gallons and then a uh I've got a sixteen well it's it's just shy of sixteen gallons uh uh a hot liquor tank. That I that I run, so I had it set up. Um, had it set up in my so, so I built a uh, my uh, third stall in my garage where third stall pale ale comes from. Uh, it Formally was known as yeah, shut <laughs> up. Uh, so that uh, um, that is uh, twenty eight by was twenty eight by twelve and a half. So my wife wanted a mudroom when we first got our house, and I'm like, okay, I'll do the mudroom, but this is what I want to do with the garage. And so she was like, fine, whatever, you know. And so because at that point, the biggest drag about homebrewing, um, one of them is uh, is setting up and breaking down. If you're not already set up for it, it takes a lot of motivation to like, OK, I had to break all the stuff out, you know, do all that. If it's already set up, then it's just easy. You know, you, you get your water in there and you start going. So but I, I had it uh, had it all set up and. Um, I plumbed it, you know, walled it off, plumbed it, heated it, um, you know, had all my my uh, stuff in it. I, I took out the garage door and put in a four-panel uh, slider that I, I got for cheap. Um, and then I had windows on the other side, so I had plenty of ventilation and all that stuff. And it was uh, set it up just as a three-tier system, you know, on the – or a three-vessel three, three system on the top. Uh, and then, yeah, I could use gravity. But I had pumps, you know, to run everything through. And does it make a difference, pumps versus gravity, in the end result? Of the um, no, you just. It, it, I had enough ceiling elevation in there in my garage, but a lot of people don't necessarily, you know. So 
you you need pumps to move liquid if if that's the case you know i i could operate on gravity but i had pumps i mean it was it's nice to put the the with the with the plate chiller um sometimes it was a struggle to get um could get everything moved from the boil kettle through the plate chiller without a pump so you're you were actually able to homebrew uh in your garage oh yeah yeah no, it was all set up. My when my wife was pregnant, she hated the smell. Oh yeah, <laughs> and so like I'd send her away when I was homebrewing in the basement, you know, and then uh, she didn't like the smell of the like grains. The, the wort, yeah, she oh, made her nauseous See, as it's, hell. It's funny. I've I've talked to people, you know, beer tending, and it's either they love the smell or they hate it. Oh, yeah. I have well, never seen or talked to anybody in between. Well, it's a little bit different though when you're pregnant. Though, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't say I've been pregnant before, <laughs> to my knowledge, at least. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it was. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I decked out this, decked it out, had the kegerator in there and all that stuff, and uh, yeah, so it was kind of my own oasis, but. A lot of the stuff is now incorporated in the brewery. At some point when we move, I'll disassemble my stuff and put my brewery back together in there. I know, you, and you going back to the third stall, Pale mm-hmm. Ale, I know, homage to your garage home brewing days. Was that the first style that you brewed, or did you start on something else? I, I kept that beer on pretty much all the time. Um, that was my always go-to session beer. Um that and I kept Pilsner's going, which is the straw German Pilsner is basically the that recipe that I do. And then, which you know, if I can say, uh, I do not like Pilsner style beer. It's a, it's never been a thing for me. Um, I think mostly because Miller High Life is a Pilsner style, and then I've had Stella before. It's like yeah, whatever. And then. I, well, I didn't like IPAs either until one day you forced me to drink the, I think it was the double IPA the first time you put that on at Pitchfork. And I've slowly kind of warmed up to the styles, uh, especially your Czech Pilsner. I do like that one with the Zotz Hops. Yeah. But, there, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that uh, I, I could see that where there's, you know, because there's a lot of Pilsners out on the market. Um, if you that in my opinion end up being like over filtered so you lose a lot of the body and the flavor profile of it um not a lot of people do them you know so there's that's the other thing with them you know um i like them you know for me if i walk into a you know i i give big respect to if i walk into a brewery and i have their pilsner and i like it you know i'm like that's because it's just it's a little you know everybody oh they're difficult to do well they are kind of you just have to you know, pay attention to what the hell you're doing. You know, you need the proper yeast strain for whatever temperatures you got cooking, you you know, and the way that you, you know, the way that you handle the grain, all that stuff. I mean, it makes a big difference. There's no place to hide, you know, in a Pilsner. So like a good Pilsner from like a brewery is like miles ahead of like a Coors or anything like that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 But actually, like Pilsners are actually like one of my favorites. Like it used to be like could not because like I, Coors and all Miller and all that right. stuff. But then I start having like craft beer, like Pilsner's like, oh, this is great. Yeah. 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 And I grew up in a Miller Light, Miller High Life family. That's why I think kind of turned me away from well, beer and you're originally. Looking, you're looking at a lot of adjuncts in those beers too. So, you know, um, with the adjuncts, you're looking at fermentable for people who don't know, but it's uh, those would be uh, a basis of creating fermentable sugar um, from, you know, your region. So if you think about that, like, 
you know, red stripe in Jamaica, well, what do they have? They have beet sugar. So beet sugar ends up in that beer. You know, Budweiser has rice because they're from down south, lots of rice production. Miller would have corn. You know, hey, that's our, our cash crop of fermentable sugar, you know. So you're, in addition to that, the way, reason that they taste so shitty is that the you've got six-row malt that goes in there that has, the six-row malt has more diastatic power to convert because mm-hmm. the, the, the corn, rice, you know, those those sugars don't have the proper enzymes uh, in them to convert themselves with the temperature. So you need the six row malt that has, you know, all that diastatic power and enzymes to do that starch conversion on those. In addition to that, they've got more husk material to endosperm. So you're, you're able to kind of lauder through that or your recirculator kind of filter through that to get the you know, to get that, that wort out of there. So it's, you know, there's a lot of unappealing things for it, but boy, they can be cheap as hell to make. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I forgot the question I had because you went on. So, uh, what was your first, uh, like it wasn't, did you have, was it like a spring fest? Like what was your first festival that you guys threw? Oh, I think it, oh, jeez. It was a while ago. How <laughs> we opened? It would have been our. It actually would have been our uh, our fall fest. All right. So and that uh, with that one, that was uh, I've I've annually um, done beers with the homegrown pumpkins. So I've I've been doing that for a long time, and uh, I don't know how many years, but it's a lot now. Um, and like last year and this year, I'll end up buying the pumpkins from a local farmer because it's like fifty little pie pumpkins, you know, that I have to that I have to purchase. Last year they were just too damn late. So like when I first bought my house, I did not have as much shade cover on my gardens as I do now. So everything I plant in there comes late. So I'm like, unless I'm gonna have my pumpkin beer in November, you know, I gotta get this. Uh, I gotta get this underway. So we, uh, so now I've, I've been buying the barrel aged pumpkin beer. <laughs> I, I smoked them last year. I, you did, and that yeah. I thought that turned out phenomenal. Yeah, that was that, it was different. Uh, pumpkin I, there's pumpkin beers can be all over the place, but I've actually like pitchfork ones have actually been good like constantly. So that's yeah. always surprising. And I think there's a fine. I, I've, I've seen more and more smoked beers. I'd say in the last year and a half, two years, mm-hmm. and I really think there's a very fine line of not enough smoke and too much smoke. Yeah. But your the pumpkin beer that you did last year, the that hit it the nail right on the head, in my opinion. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, we had just built the monstrosity, so I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, slowly smoke these things. You Which know? is what what is the monstrosity for uh, those that don't know? It's a big pole behind smoker that Tony Mac and I made. And uh and we both enjoy it a lot. <laughs> Was that uh, was that first used like right before the one with the giant pig roast? Um, who, who, yeah, who was, did the pig roast? I was going to ask you that. Um, that was your first first year. Fest? Seasons did it, uh, very first year, and then the second year I did it, and that's when Sarah got the hog from her dad, and her dad like way overshot it. So we had like a three hundred pound hog, and so I was up, Leo. 24 hours before the festival, stoking this pig roaster, you know, trying to keep setting an alarm, waking up, and then plus working the festival all. It was 
I still get. Well, uh, you seem to go through it pretty quick because by the time I got there, there wasn't a whole lot of the meat left. I did. That was the first time I had pork cheek, though. Oh, yeah. That was. I wasn't sure what to think about. Also, I might partly be to blame for that. Like, I I still get shit for picking out a little bit at that (laughs) one. (laughs) Yeah, that's. uh, I I had. Man, I think the year after that, when I did the, uh, when I, I just smoked shoulders and I did it and I pulled those, there was one guy who had like nine sandwiches. That was something. Good start. Yeah, that was crazy. That's a warm up. Right. <laughs> you need, you need something to go with that, all that beer there. Right. right. Yeah. Well, especially I know on, well, until recently you were mentioning your, the, uh, malt, was it that has been great not um, grounded differently? Oh yeah. And but your beers have dropped down by I'd say yeah, know, at least four percent. I had to readjust everything because there was uh, BSG had switched up their milling. Um, this was around Memorial Day, oh a while back, and I was they were still figuring it out, and my grain was coming pulverized. So my gravities at a you know ten fifty beer were shooting up to. 1065 i mean it was just insane i'm like in layman's terms crap. what does that mean uh it means they're all jumping up two percent alcohol for every single batch of beer that i was putting in there so i had to had to adjust all my efficiency rates and readjust all my recipes based on that it's you know when we get to the new place i'll have a mill so i can keep that all consistent but um but right now, milling all of that grain through my crappy little... I, I mill the specialties, but I order my base malt milled. And so it's uh, it takes too damn long and creates so much dust that it's a nightmare. What was your... Uh, like when you're homebrewing, like did you have your own like mill set up for homebrewing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, Did you start out with like the hand crank? Uh, yeah, it was a hand crank that I, I I've automated it, and it's still the mill I use. I got it for my wedding twenty one years ago, um, and when I got it, it was uh, a home brewer had engineered it, and I I love it. I love the design of it. It's not they're not gnarled, uh, so they're flat roller mills, and it just rolls like you have a it adjusts one wheel. And so you can open it or close it, you know, on there with just a hopper that comes out. So, but the hopper comes there. They had a hopper on the bottom. I ripped the hopper off, made a box, you know, to catch everything. And then it fits over a garbage can. Oh, and nice. so I, yeah, so I drop everything in there. So it keeps it pretty, you know, at least dust controlled on some level. Most of the dust at the brewery comes from dumping the grain bags out. You know, it's just like, everywhere <laughs> like once you get to a point like i wouldn't recommend like home brewing like starting out with like milling for your grain but like once you get to that point like it's nice oh, yeah. but like uh like start like starting out with the hand i remember hand cranking for ages and like oh and that was only for like five gallon batches like yeah. i wasn't doing like the 20 gallon batches yeah it was uh yeah as soon as i, I jumped up to that much i automated it oh, yeah. you know so i strapped down a half inch drill and made a chuck to go in and yeah, I figured it out quickly. <laughs> like I think, like, like right now, we're using uh, like a, a, a screw, like a some sort of screwdriver setup. Like we already burned through one of those, though. Yeah, um, it's nice if you the uh, the cheap like skill drills. What you put in, um, you can you know have you can pull them in and then set it on automatic, and then you can turn the knob to do the control on it, and so get it just going relatively slow. 
on there, that's the way to go. Like, I'm pretty Those sure that used to be the reason why Casey would pull me into brewing was just so right. I would do the grind. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> grind. Yeah, yeah. I, I had my kids doing it for a while. Like, <laughs> hey, come on, look at kids, you're helping. You know, and they, yeah. their attention spans were, you know, very short. And that was, yeah, yeah. but I got a little out of them. Well, I, I personally, I kind of miss the old sessionable pitchfork beers at 8%. Yeah. Like the brown ale. I remember that was seven five seven eight. Yeah. Yeah, everything took a jump for a while. The scotch ale there for a quick minute was nine. Yeah. I know. I'd have people sitting there. I'd like to have another one, but Jesus Christ, <laughs> getting drunk with these two. Right. Yeah. Those were good times. Yeah. Even the pale ale had a jump there up for yeah. what seven, close to seven. Yeah. Right? There was a point in time where everything jumped for a while. Yeah, we we had to adjust all that and mess with it a little bit. So. So with the talking about the malt and everything, you know, causing your you know, the ABV to jump up two percent, you said you had to adjust accordingly. This less malt then at that yeah, point, or? yeah, the uh, it maximizes the efficiency on it. But uh, honestly, I don't. I, you know, a lot of breweries really look for that, um, but for me, that's horribly inconvenient and everything. Um, I don't like my grain to be pulverized. One, my false bottom doesn't handle it well, so I, I've had stuck mashes, you know, and that's that's obviously an issue. Um, too much stuff sliding through the false bottom. I'm direct fire, so, you know, that concerns me too. Like, the potential for scorching or, you know, overproduction of, you know, melanoidins, that kind of thing, like, depending upon the recipe. So it's like, uh, yeah, having having stuff sliding through is, is not good. I'd, you know, sooner have that uh, less fine of a crush and, you know, have the beers turn out to where they're supposed to be. Sure. Uh, what is the false bottom for those of us, those of us that don't brew? Uh, so when you're when you're brewing, the, the false bottom separates um, separates the grain so you can, you know, with a valve on the bottom. So liquid flows through it, but the grain doesn't stop up the, you know, stop up the flow. So you got to, your spigot's below the, the false bottom. Gotcha. So in a stuck mash, it, it all gets sticky and no liquid goes through. So those are good times. <laughs> I imagine they're fun to clean. Uh, it's it's more of, you know, you want to recirculate the beer, especially since I don't do any filtration on any of the beers whatsoever. So no fining agents or anything like that. Um, what happens in a stuck mash is I end up trying to clear the stuck mash and then trying to recirculate again to catch most of the you know, debris and material in the false bottom, or I mean, in the grain bed, you know, before the false bottom. So I can, I can collect that clear, you know, clean wort. Um, you get too much grain and husk material that makes it from, you know, the mash tun into the boil kettle and then you're boiling it. Well, that brings out, you, you end up with a lot of astringency that ends up in the beer, uh, harshness to it, that kind of thing. So, yeah. No, and you, like you said, the no filtration whatsoever. Uh, I'm curious, how is it that you're able to get like the Pilsner, for example, to be? I mean, it's crystal clear. A uh, little cold, little cold conditioning. I mean that, that and my mass schedule. So um, a lot of a lot of large breweries. And my voice cracked like puberty. <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of large uh, large breweries will, you know, only do um, starch conversion on there um with my my german malts and stuff like that i still step mash them i try to try to go through a protein rest to get a little of those uh, soluble to be caught by the grain bed 
um, helps doing whole clone hops. I have another false bottom in my boil kettle. So those whole clone hops will, uh, the hot break that happens in the boil kettle where the proteins coagulate on the top, um, will be caught on the top of my hops at the bottom. So that rolls out a little cleaner. Um, when I'm, uh, you know, then it goes into, you know, the lagering temperatures and then I cold condition it. Um, when I do the cold conditioning, rather than using the valves from the bottom to keg out of, I actually transfer from, which I, I transfer out of pump or siphon out of the top. So I like a home brewing setting, I'll open up the top of my fermenters, lower everything down. I've got a diverter. So the bottom is blocked, so it's not pulling straight off the bottom. It's pulling from the top in. So um, all the the proteins and, and, and whatnot, the tube tend to collect towards the sides of the stainless steel. Um, and then the yeast tend to go to the bottom. And if I can drop that uh, diverter down in the, in the middle of it, I'm pulling pretty clean beer out of there. So And then, you know, a little bit of cold conditioning, that kind of thing. It cleans up. Yeah, like like I said, I mean, your Pilsner, it, lighter beers, it's easy to see, you know. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in this, yeah, it's, yeah it's some, not always. I mean, yeah. it all depends, if, where, you know, and, where it's moved. But, I mean, yeah. And, honestly, Pitchfork's the only brewery that I ever found so far that I know says, you know, we don't filter at all. And there's there's other breweries out there that don't yeah, filter that, for sure. At I least mean, that, don't, that's not part of their... Yeah, I uh, but I try tour. to do stuff for the whole, you know, um, gelatin. You know, people who do filter uh, gelatin violate some people's dietary stuff. It's that's not a vegan friendly clarifying agent. Either is uh, sturgeon air bladders, which is Isinglass. So I don't use any of that stuff in there. You know, so we've been actually, I don't advertise it, but we've been written up in the vegan you know, uh, vegan internet posts and stuff like that is like, so anytime that we have honey and beer or lactose or anything like that, I try to post it so people know, you know, what it is. So I'm not violating their diet, but oh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, so people know when they have also been told that our flight slips are really nice for deaf people. Oh yeah. Yeah. They come in and like, they can point and write their stuff out and then I can get them their beer and their, all thumbs up. <laughs> so, and in, I forgot my question. Damn it, Carlos. <laughs> I, can, I, I can jump in. So earlier in the That's show, fantastic. we talked about uh, you and brought up like the, the biggest disaster they had homebrewing, but like uh-huh. you don't you don't have to say the worst one, but just give us an example of like kind of a, a disaster that. That might have happened, like, like now that you're actually doing like a brewing business. Like. Oh, I had a, I had a beer that got over over the temperature. Yeah, and uh, tasted bad, and I dumped it. I've dumped somewhere eleven to somewhere between eleven to thirteen beers so far. I think since we've opened, um, a lot of them temperature related, but this one got a little funky, and um, so I'll I'll pump it out. You know, well, I've got this submersible pump that I just drop in there. Oh, created a volcano. <laughs> I probably a barrel and a half of beer that hit the hit the floor. You should have seen Tony Mac's eyes when I, I was like, oh, man. And I jumped over there, quick unplug it and pull the pump out, you know, and it is just 
just got all the CO2 going and it just ruptured <laughs> out of the top. You were, you know, almost not quite ankle deep, but shop vac and just <laughs> mopping and cleaning. And oh, that was bad. I've had lots of stuff like that. Yeah. I, I love it when I'm working a shift and all of a sudden a customer goes, um, you have something going on in the hallway? Shit. You know, you're like, <laughs> you come out and there's a puddle of beer, which means there's a bigger puddle of beer inside oh, yeah. the cooler somewhere. Um, I had a keg of root beer drain. That was good. I know you love making the root beer. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, actually, I kind of want to hear you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what makes root beer such a pain in the ass? It's just collecting, yeah. mainly collecting all the ingredients, bringing, because I, I still brew it in my, have to make it in my homebrew equipment because it's, uh, it's just sucks. I mean, it's just one of those things where you small equipment, I have to haul it all in. I have to source all the ingredients, you know, get it done. It's not like I can just order everything in. That's not how it works. Cause I've got too much crap going on with it. So I have to source this from here, <laughs> that from there, get it. And then, yeah. And I, that I make it so it's just horribly inconvenient. Now, is there any chance of a orange cream ale ever coming out? Since um, there's been numerous requests, I would because um, on and I know you hate making. When it, we do some expansion, part of that, I would happily expand the. You know, I'm just gonna build it to be more convenient to make. Um, but yeah, it, I'm 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 fine with that. And I, you know, if we get to the if we get to a new location and we've get. Uh, you know, get uh, a restaurant in there. Definitely do ice cream and stuff with it because that rip beer is super solid with ice cream. Yeah, no, no, and by far your root beer is the best I've ever had. It blows everything out of the water, including the A and W, the local A and W out on exit what nineteen, I think it is. I don't one. tell Anthony Walker that. <laughs> He's a regular customer of ours. He's good, uh, but he's good if it's fresh. If you happen to get there on the right day, but we uh. Actually, I did some taste tests with some kids who just came from me. I'm like, all right, how how am I doing? You know, and they're like, oh, this is good. But uh, yeah, it's the yeah the. And I have I've done fun yeah, and I've done good. floats with it before, and I've done yeah. uh, Jack in the Barrels, oh, little sure. Jack Daniels, and God damn it, it's good. I've been actually surprised like a couple times, quite a few times I've gone in and like, oh, there's like a hockey coach in there or something, or a soccer coach, and like they brought all the kids, like the kids are course drinking root beer, yeah. yeah. Uh, but like it's like oh <laughs> it's like this is just a surprise. I brought it to uh, my son's fifth grade graduation uh, from elementary school deal at EP Rock, and like so I talked to him. Eli's like, Dad, would you bring Rip here? And I'm like, Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll bring Rip here in for the class. So I'd I had to move everything to a non-alcohol related bottle, you know, do all this stuff to bring the Rip here in there. And I can't tell you how many of those kids I saw with their parents. That came in like, apparently we have to come here and have the root beer. (laughs) I'm like, sorry about that, you know. (laughs) So they. Well, and I I even brought up to Thanksgiving uh, last year for my family, who's been sober for the better part of 30 years on that branch of the tree. And I I just brought up in growlers. It's like, I'm not transferring this. I have better things to do with my time. And the initial shock of when they saw Pitchwork Brewing on there, I'm like, no, no, no. It's root beer. It's fine. Just yeah. bear with me here. I brought up three gallons, and it was gone in about an hour, hour and a half. 
And yeah. it's like, oh, uh, you're now the designated root beer bringer. Oh, oh thanks. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and brought more up on 4th of July of this year. And everybody just wolf that down along. They're doing root beer floats and yeah. everything. And it's Jason Fitzsimmons' kids. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, Mike's root beer stand is what Pitchfork Brewing is. <laughs> but yeah, why? Well, again, the question's gone. I had a question lined up, and then you got into a tangent. <laughs> It happens sometimes. Yeah, Weird right. Happens. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the bourbon. I no, swear. not at all. No, I'm sure, none. Um, so, uh, like, uh, so pitchfork. Why did you decide like to call it a uh, pitchfork? Uh, that that came about because I grow hops, grow pumpkins, um, all that kind of stuff, and it's viren- we're real environmentally friendly on the backside of it. It's Nothing that we really advertise all that much, but we we do some things, um, you know, that are unusual. Our hops are locally sourced for all the American beers, so I got four local hop farmers for all that. There, are, it's all whole cone uh, brewing, with some exceptions every now and then for certain varieties. Um, and then, uh, you know, on the uh, on that, like all the grains go to farmers. I compost the hops; they go back into the gardens. I obviously like to grow my, you know, grow my stuff for my my beer if I can. Um, on the back side of it, we circle, we recirculate all of our uh, all of our um, uh, chilling water, you know, for everything. So we do about three hundred gallons of, of water a year that we use and will dump, uh, versus about twelve hundred gallons a batch. Um, that would be used and and gotten rid of all of our high BOD waste uh, gets land spread. So hop um, septic guys, Albright comes, they pump it, land spread it. So it's it's great fertilizer above ground. But you know, so kind of uh, what we did is with that concept in mind, we sent it out on Facebook to family and friends, and like you know, come up with uh, come up with names. My my brother-in-law Andy came up with Pitchfork, and we all kind of liked it. So it's kind of was that kind of your intention right out the gate to be able to have that? I don't know. I don't want to say renewable, but recyclable. Um, it's that's what I did at home, you know. So it's like my grains would go to the chickens, you know, and and so when I started brewing, the chickens could smell it, and I could see them pacing. And the, they would come out, and they would just, like, it cracked me up. they just start pacing, like, ooh, we're going to get warm grain, you know, kind of thing. And so, but, yeah, I mean, I I grew the hops, and the stuff would go back in the compost bin, gave the stuff to the chickens, you know, uh, tried to conserve the water as much as I could. You know, all of that stuff was just, you know, it, it's not even the hippy-dippy part of it, like, of being, it, it just seems to me to make more sense and to be, you know, more responsible about stuff it's you know um it's an easier way to deal with stuff you know it's and now at the commercial level you said you're i mean you're going through 300 gallons of water versus 1200 gallons uh-huh. of beer how are you recycling that you know the cooling process because i've been working before somebody asked me because i remember your, yeah uh, so i've got a i've got uh refrigerated 55 gallon uh drums uh that are in there and then we freeze the ice in the winter i'll throw it outside let mother nature do it and then um 
and then put uh, and then I roll it out and we've got two plate chillers. So there's a barrel for each plate chiller and then I take the ice out of the freezer, drop it in, I collect the hot side of it back into the five gallon buckets and then refreeze that. Um, we if when we expand or if we get to a new location and that kind of thing, um, I'd like to have economizers to add to all of this economizers on the top of the buildings to um, to power you know cool all of our refrigeration during the winter months. Just makes sense if you can have a thermostat controlled fan to pull you know cold air in to to do that. That's I'd be the way to go, you know, rather than, you know, and everything else creates so much heat too. I mean, it's, uh, we spend a lot more to cool than we do to heat, uh, everything just because of all the, you know, all the refrigeration and that kind of thing. And as I've joked with people, especially yesterday, um, so Saturday the 11th, was it, mm-hmm. was the five year anniversary uh, and people, you know, it's kind of warm in here. I go, well, yeah, the AC's set, but I mean, here we have beer, AC, and internet. Pick two, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly the way I look at it too. Yeah, you can have one, but not all of them. But no, yeah, it's uh, man, brewing gets hot. I've come in. Uh, was it? A, I think you brewed on a Tuesday. I want yeah. to say, and I came in, it was at least 95. Oh, yeah. And Matt's a sweater. <laughs> he just sweats. And you're just like, holy crap. But I like heat, but that was a new kind of humid uh, that I've never heard uh, of. It's, yeah. That's how I was. You want to be a brewer? Do you like dry underwear? Because <laughs> that's not really an option. So if it's a brew day, like how much of a gap is it between finishing brewing and like opening the uh, place? It's sometimes 15, 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. Sometimes not. <laughs> if it's 15, 20 minutes, like a, like how long does it take the place to cool down? It never bit? really does. Never does. No. Yeah, uh, the, rooftop, the rooftop unit is not like our landlords were really gracious in the way that they built everything. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, no, that's not true. Any of that. Um, our rooftop unit is so undersized for our stuff that it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I work in a location full time, smaller than Pitchfork Brewing, uh, maybe Pitchfork plus half a Patty Ryan. And we have a 14 ton AC unit, a 16 ton heating unit. Yeah. That barely keeps up in the Mm -hmm. summer months in in particular. All of our regulars that are, uh, we have a couple of regulars that are, you know, HVAC guys, and they're like, oh, this is ridiculously underpowered. You know, there's, so I do some stuff like having fans moving air and do stuff while I'm brewing just to, like, try to minimize the amount of stress on the equipment, you know, that's in there, but. Way to rub it in. We can't even run fans while recording because it makes noise. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, uh, this is a uh, this is this is still cooler than brewing. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's one of those days. Oh yeah, yeah. It's. it's <laughs> <laughs> I had a question lined up. I uh-huh. swear I did this time. What's the uh, most exotic beer you've like attempted at the brewery so far? Uh, um, French toast was, you know, was kind of one of those. Um, that was, 
that all started with a drunken evening of me sitting there having beers, thinking I could make a beer that tastes like French toast. And uh, a few beers later, you know, I'm writing down notes and, you know, woke up in the morning and I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, yeah, that, that'll work, you know. And, uh, and you know, I was working with Sarah at the time and Jeff. And so they're sitting there and they're like, you're not good. It's not going to taste like French toast. You know, and it tastes like just, French toast. God, does it taste like French toast? Yeah. And they were just, you know, naysaying it. And I'm like, well, let's, let's try, you know, let's pull a sample out of it. I pull it off and they, they both like were drinking it. They looked at each other, looked at me and I can't remember which one. Son of a bitch. <laughs> it tastes like French toast. It, it, it's my favorite beer to drink in the winter months, but it is my least favorite to serve because of the uh, rimmed yeah, glass of brown oh, yeah. sugar and cinnamon. But you know what? If you have that rim thing on there, the lipstick is going to be off. That's true. Because you're scrubbing the shit out of the rim. <laughs> <laughs> it does stick pretty bad. Yeah. Actually, that's like the one thing, like during a festival, I try to avoid the French toast just because otherwise right. my hands might get a little sticky for quite a while. Yeah, yes. everything is cinnamon and sugar. <laughs> the worst is when somebody comes in, during, especially during Fall Fest and French toast is on, and they order a flight and they want to get the French toast sale and it's always this poor, stupid... Yeah, immediately off the gate. But yeah. do you do like when they get the uh, flight? Do you, do you still do the cinnamon sugar? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We do. Yeah. Even for the samples, I do it. And Just and and I've full. got a lot of people like because it's a solid beer that oh, tastes yeah. like French toast without the cinnamon sugar. And so I get a lot of people come in. Yeah, I'll take the French toast. No foo foo. You know. <laughs> so they they order it that way. I'm gonna have to join that crowd. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. Keeps it from getting everywhere. Yeah. A lot easier to clean. Right. Uh, other than that, like exotic wise, I mean, we've, I've done stuff with passion fruit and jalapenos and, you know, I'm just. Which that, is there kind of ever going to be a return of the smokestack lightning? Yeah, actually. Um, uh, for those that haven't had it, uh, that was a collaboration with Swing Bridge. Yeah, we're doing it uh, in a week or two. Are you doing it as a collaboration mm-hmm. again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you use smoked poblano peppers? Uh, smoked poblano in Anaheim, and then I smoked a bunch of the hops. So the hops were, uh, John Brock from Stone Hill uh, said, you should try smoking hops, because I, I, you know, I built a smoker, and I like doing that stuff. And so we, <laughs> uh, so he, uh, he uh, took some Chinook straight off the vine and then um, gave them to me, and then I put them in the smoker, Took, um, I smoked them at like 90 degrees and took uh, some uh, heavy gauge kind of vinyl hardware cloth and lined the smoker uh, on the side. And I got well, seven pounds in there or so. So I smoked them wet. Uh, they grab a lot more of the smoke characteristic from them. And then I put them, I got an house that I built at home to dry them up. And so I put them in there, dried them up, and then I vacuum sealed them and put them away. And so we use that to dry hop in that beer. Um, you know, Mike kind of came up with the base recipe, um, for it. And then I did and this the, is Mike O'Hara, Mike O'Hara, swinging, yeah, bridge. swinging bridge. Um, and then, so we, we, we brewed it. So we add the peppers, you know, towards the end of the boil and then we dry hopped with the smoked hops. 
The one nice thing about the smoked hops versus working with a smoked grain is that the contact time with the beer, with the smoked grain, is going to be all the way through. Where with the smoked hops, it is limited. So you might have it as a final addition into the boil or whatever. So it's a shorter period of time of exposure. The nice thing about that is that um, it changes the smoke characteristic in the beer where um, where the hops or where the grain, if it's in there, it will be all the way through the beer and finish with it more. Where if you've got that hop addition in there, it tends to limit like how much of the aftertaste is smoke, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a nice way to add a small amount of smoke without overpowering the beer. And that's what I really liked about it because, as I mentioned before, I mean, there's that really fine line between not enough smoke and too much smoke. And you really hit the head, hit the nail on the head with that beer. And even with pepper, uh, I'm not a huge pepper beer fan. I've had a few. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of nice because you got the porter right out the gate. But then on the backside, you got a little bit of that hot pepper. And then it finished with the smoke on the backside of the all yeah it's not it's not you know we don't do a ton of peppers in there it's just a couple of anaheims couple of poblanos that i throw in the smoker um you know and then we we chuck them in the end of the boil fantastic you didn't do a firkin with that one did you Mm -mm. what was the firkin um so right before we did that one i did a separate smoked porter where i smoked uh, some of the grain and use the smoke tops in it. So I did a I did a firkin with that one. Okay, that's what I remember. Yeah. So did you uh, when you first opened? Did you also have a firkin already on, or like did, did that like w- w- was that not right away? No, I designed it that way. I mean that uh, I I really liked the and I've had a lot of brewers come in that have visited our place that like look at our firkin window and they're like that's genius, you know. So Which, like I I had kind of. I had planned that where the, you know, for me doing the cast conditioned beers, I want to do them the way a camera has some kind of setup to do. And so I do them the proper way in their eyes and, you know, put the firkin together. So transfer, transfer the beer into the cask, add 750 milliliters of unfermented uh, wort, throw in some something to complement the beer, seal it up, cellar it for 10 days, throw it up in the window. You know, my pet peeve with firkins are people who do them where they're pre-carbonated beer that goes in there and they just throw some crap in there and throw it up on the countertop. You know, that's not the way that they're supposed to be done. The belly of the cake supposed to catch the sediment from the natural fermentation. And then you, you know, and then you tap the suckers and run them for a few limited days. You know, could we do a quick explanation of what a firkin is? Yes. Yes, please. Uh, so. Firkin actually refers to the size of the container. So a pin is like six gallons. A firkin is nine gallons, but those are imperial. Um, So it ends up to be a firkin is 10.8 U.S. gallons. But what uh, what a firkin is, it's a traditional cast-conditioned beer. So Camera, the campaign for real ale, says that they should be done um, where they're naturally cellared, where... Uh, so, so I transfer that beer in there, put the word in there. The word activates the yeast uh, that's in there. If you've got a, a beer that is um, that's older, um, you might have to add some additional yeast in there. But um, the uh, word then gets consumed by the yeast. The yeast creates its natural carbonation. Um, so they're flatter, served warm. 
uh, once you tap them, but then you, you vent them and you allow oxygen to come in during the venting time. So that slowly changes the beer. There's a little CO2 blanket um, that's omitted from the beer that keeps it stable for, you know, about four days. Anything beyond that, there, you have too much oxygen blending with the CO2. It starts to oxidize and change, and they do change from day one to, you know, to the final days that they're running, um, which is part of the fun. So, like, know? that means, like, you kind of have to try to release, like, start, like, when do you, like, do tap the frickin'? We like tap on? them on Thursdays and run them through Sundays. And so I run them at $3 on Sundays just to blow out the rest of it because it's just going to get land spread beyond that. So I'd sooner, you know, sooner have people drink it for a cheaper amount than, than land spread it if it's if it's there. They don't always last till then, but, um, but oh, yeah. The last few that you've run have been phenomenal, in they, my opinion. They've been running out. Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, Dry Stout ran out really early today. Dry Stout on chocolate. Um, still have some of the stuff that we tapped on on Saturday, so I'll probably run that Tuesday. So. I'm still mad. I think it was three years ago, give or take. Uh, you did a stout or porter on Kenoki's oh, dark chocolate. That's Brian's fault. And you killed that. <laughs> <laughs> you killed that in about an hour, hour and two hours. Well, maybe? Brian got a lot of flack for that. He came in and he drank Son the shit out of that frickin'. <laughs> yeah, I, and, I uh, saw it on Facebook, and on Thursday, I'm like, "Oh, good, I'll go in tomorrow night." And I come yeah. in I'm like, "I'll get the fr- we're we're out." <laughs> You're what? <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, there were a bunch of the irregulars were in, and they're like, "We got to try this frickin', you know." And uh, I'm like. I look over at Brian, he's like, mm, it's gone, you know, and, and they just gave him so much crap for, he still gets crap for that. Remember that time you drank should. all that, Firkin? But no, that that's was, what it's there for. That was outstanding. For and Brian to drink. It was, uh, that was the first time I ever saw Firkin was walking into Pitchfork. Uh, and the I, Swing Bridge, uh, again, like we mentioned, Michael O'Hare had brewer down there in River Falls, Wisconsin. Uh, he... They do a firkin weekly as well. Uh, the only other place I've ever seen that has done a firkin was Jagged Edge, I want to say, out in uh, Denver, Colorado. And they had a German chocolate shake firkin. And hmm. they didn't put a cooler around it or you know any kind of um, uh, insulation. Yeah, they yeah. just threw it up on the counter. And it had been there prior to I walked in. It must have been there for a couple hours, but I, it was a German chocolate cake in yeah, my sure. pint class. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's, uh, you know, I I like the way that we do it just because it's all temperature controlled. It's the proper, you know, it should be cellar temperature, which is 50 to 55 degrees is uh, for proper serving temperature. And you monitored it fairly well with the fan that connects to the main cooler. Mm-hmm. And yeah, oh, yeah, that's, that stays that that stays between 51 and 54 in there. And you double that room up for your lagering room? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all full of Oktoberfest right now. I've seen you have um, uh, the barrel barrels in there too. Do you age yeah. the barrels as well in that room? Oh, yeah, yeah. I like I like a little cooler temperature to well. Something's going on with beer. It's nice to be a little cooler. You know, keeps everything a little more stable. In your opinion, do you think that affects a and flavor if mm-hmm. you oh for sure control the temperature of the barrel? Oh yeah, yep. All of like, it does. Temperature control is a huge deal in beer. Yeah. I, I mean, I learned more about barrel aging than anything I did when I went down to Kentucky for the first time yeah. uh, earlier this year and got to go three three different tour, uh, distillery tours and them explaining uh, the big one 
um, Jim Beam was the big one that I went to, and they were talking about how they rotate their barrels throughout their their warehouse, if you will. Yeah. Uh, because it does affect the flavor of bourbon. I didn't know. Yeah. The uh, I have you. Um, what is it? Uh, God, Jefferson's Ocean. Yeah. Have you tried that? I did for the first time not too long ago. Yeah. Over at uh, Dark Horse, they had that. Bought, they had a few bottles. Yeah, so they, uh, they, that's a bourbon that they put out. They put it out to sea. And so the barometric pressure uh, swells and shrinks the barrels as it goes. And then the whiskeys or the, the bourbons always, uh, m- you know, moving around in there. Boy, is that smooth and delicious. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, it was. That's good stuff. Yeah, that was different. I mean, it was worth the price. I can tell you what I paid that night. Because well, it was expensive, <laughs> I'm sure. I was having a good time. I'm not going to see a lot of people doing that here in Wisconsin. That's, no. That's the uh, the Nova's bourbon drinking contest. That's I, I camped out there for a little bit and had some of that where I proceeded to stumble backwards into the car. My wife, get in, drunkie. <laughs> And I won though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, my uh, good buddy, and he's been on the episode on the show before. Justin, he bartends Wednesday through Sunday typically. So Monday, Tuesday nights, we'll stumble over to Barrel Theory, which is right next door to Dark Horse. And oh, here, here's a new whiskey. I haven't had that one before. Let's try that. And so I have a pint of beer and, and glass of whiskey. Makes for a good night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not Nova, so good morning. Nova provides a keg along with the bourbon drinking contest, so I'm like, have one in each hand and looking at other people. You people are doing this wrong. <laughs> you don't understand how this is supposed to work, right? You know, you drink the really good bourbon, you taste it. So, <laughs> so uh, how has the uh, like the uh, craft beer business like changed like since you first opened like uh, on the scene? Oh, in the area. Well, in like generally in Wisconsin, but yeah, also in the area too. Um, in the area, there's a lot more. You know, uh, think about. Uh, I remember doing our first first podcast down here uh, with Casey, and the only other brewery in the area was a you know aside from Rush River, who didn't have a tap room at the time, no. was American Sky. You know, now we've got you know Swinging Bridge, Rush River, uh, Hop and Barrel, uh, Olifant. Um, Bobtown, you know, I mean, there's that's just St. Croix County, yeah. I mean, there's just uh, a, a lot more around in the area. You can jump over if you head east on 94, you're gonna run into uh, um, um, Lazy Monk in, mm-hmm. in Eau Claire. There's uh, oh, there's in, two more in Menominee, two more um, in Menominee. There is there's Lucette, there's Raw Deal. Um, but the raw deal is going into the train depot where Ryan is is starting up, and then uh, John Christensen starting up Zymergy in Menominee. Who's um, up in Amory? Is that Amory Brewworks? Amory Aleworks. Aleworks, excuse me. I yeah. apologize. I don't know a lot about them. Um, I've heard you know, good I, things from the people I've yeah, talked to. Yeah, I've, I've heard there. that there's a good uh, good tap list up there, um, and they're um, they're starting to brew. They have a their... small grassroots brewery, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much exploded in like five years. Yeah, it, it it has. I mean, that's um, you know that that is definitely a you know one of the big trends. I mean, there is there is breweries opening 
uh, every day and a half now um, has been through the TTB organization, like coming out and saying so they're it's harder to get information from those folks now because it's you call there. Um, you can wait 15 minutes on hold and not get anybody and go to voicemail. Or you can just go to voicemail and which the voicemail says, if you've, um, if you've called here and, um, we will try to respond to you within 36 hours. Don't leave us another message. If you haven't heard back from us in 36 hours, you know, until you've heard, haven't heard from us back in 36 hours, then you can call us again and leave another message. And what is this line? Where this, this is, what is their job? Oh, what do this they do? is everything. This is the federal, it's, it's the federal regulations for everything. So if you have a question about labeling and how you're labeling or, you know, or like any kind of amendment that you have to do to your brewery so, has to go through them. Sound pretty so, understaffed. When, did you have to there go is. through that, if you don't mind me asking, about the third stall pale ale, formerly known as Pitchfork um, Pale Ale? Did you no, have to that go doesn't, any that that doesn't that have anything separate. to do with okay. Yeah, that doesn't have anything to Which do with Which I still that. think we need a purple crayon for that. Oh, right. And just rename it, the formerly known as. The, uh, the yeah, for the, um, for the, for the TTB, they handle all the taxes and, that kind of stuff. So it's it's the logistics um, of everything. It's they're just the governing agent that is. Uh, it is extremely understaffed, and they they have more than they can. You know, right now, um, from what I understand, for general inspections and stuff like that, there's different ways that breweries get inspected. You know, um, if you are depending upon your percentage of distribution, whether or not you fall under the Department of Ag or local um, health inspectors. Um, and then beyond that, um, you've got your state uh, that kind of regulates that kind of taxes. And then the TTB um, beyond that regulates everything else, like all your labeling and for all that kind of stuff. So it's it's weird how it's you have different governing governing things, but the TTB is so backlogged right now that their major concern right now is distilleries. Um, so if you start a new brewery, um, it, it'll be a while before the TTB comes to look at you. It's They have to have some downtime. They focus on the distilleries. I think it was two years before I saw the TTB. Oh, wow. That For, came out. So if... You know, I, me, Joe Smith, I'm opening up a brewery or distillery for that matter. I mean, do, is it on them to contact the TBB? Oh, God. Um, everything's on you. Okay. And if you call the TTB and you have a question about labeling and you somehow end up with um, ownership or, you know, uh, permits, um, they just like start over, call labeling. And that's it. There's no like, hey, I'll transfer you to get you know, none no. of that. It's, oh, and TTB is a federal level. Yeah, that's it's normally it's the the previous like ATF and it's, you know, so it's tobacco tax and trade bureau. Can you um, can you open your brewery prior to them coming to inspect? Oh, no. no, you have to wait till they so it's at up. least a four month. Well, it's not you're. Your approval is all based on them. It's about four months. Um, when you go to start a brewery, 
uh, you have to have your lease already signed, your equipment already purchased, so they know exactly what it is, your floor plan all done. Then you send it off to them. You hope that you get approval because you've already spent all this money on everything else on there, and you have about a four-month wait before they say, okay, go ahead. So really, if you're looking to open a brewery next year, you want to start now? Yeah, you, you need to file your stuff. I mean, that's our, our company is registered in 2012 um, when we first started and registered everything, and we're uh, guns a-blazing and going, and we didn't open, you know, until... What July? July twenty seventh. Yeah. Well, July twenty seventh of thirteen is when you did your stuff. Yep, and we had our we had our uh, we had our approval a little earlier than we had all of our equipment there, um, so we were okay to go a little earlier. But but yeah, yeah, I remember kind of seeing stuff being moved in there. Didn't really pay much attention because again, I didn't drink beer. But then. Like I said, yeah. You, you, well, as you said, uh, July twenty seventh, your soft opening is about two weeks later. Is when you did your grand opening and really opened up to the public. Yeah. Do you have to deal with the same thing if, like, you decided to like change your floor plan, for example? Like, would you also have to go through them again? Um, um most of that stuff can be done through email and be uh, set in as an amendment. Um, they take a while to prove the amendments. All amendments right now, I think, are ninety days for for you find and you're already doing it. You send it in. This is what we're doing, and then they're like, "So you, you might have to undo." <laughs> just, so you know. realistically, if you know Carlos and I were starting a brewery, you know, we should probably start now if we want to open. You know, twelve to eighteen months from now. Hmm, yeah, I mean, you can do it faster than that, but, you know, it's... I mean, for a grand opening. Yeah. You really have to have your shit together. Yeah. Yeah, you you do. You have to, you know, you can't... Knowing me, I should probably start three years. (laughs) You're not going to do one thing at a time. You have to be multitasking in there and have lots of wheels in motion at the same time to get it to go as fast as you want. And there's, there's always something. I don't care what. Nothing ever happens on, you know, and... You know, our guy who provided our equipment the first time, um, I would not recommend. And he was, um, he told me three months to get my stuff, and it was eight. So there's that. (laughs) So what do you think caused this, like, explosion in, like, craft beer? Like, I've only been drinking for eight years myself. Like, I've only been 21 for that long. So I'm nine years in, and I've noticed a huge boom experience. Especially in the craft brewery industry, I'd say in the last three years, beer's delicious. It, well, oh yeah, it, but it seems like every guy that has been home brewing for six months decided that he wanted to open mm-hmm. a brewery because yeah, he's going to be the next Surly. There's that. I mean, or the next uh, Sierra Nevada. The there's next. there's uh, there's people that get into it for the wrong reason, and unfortunately, that it, in my opinion, it's kind of transparent when you actually go to those brewing facilities of like boy this is a weird kind of corporate setting you know there's it's uh, you're in this to make money this this beer is is extremely middle of the road you know it's dialed down or straight down the middle there's no risk taking on anything you know um you know i 
I don't know. I mean, uh, we, we've been since prohibition, we were really stifled with, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Miller, you know, Coors, whatever. I, I like Coors. Um, I do. And I was, you know, and Miller, uh, Miller before it was all sold out into a giant conglomeration. I respected those businesses. Anheuser-Busch, not so much. But, um, but long, you know, long story short is that, uh, you know, they, there's a reason that they've got the three-tier distribution in there because it's financially advantageous for them. So when you, um, when you look at it now, there's more momentum behind the craft brewery, you know, that is, is trying to move along. And we're, we're actually now getting to the point of where we were sort of pre-prohibition where I'm not super worried about going five, six states. You know, I want to serve my local market. And, you know, and that is my community and that's what I want to serve. And we had a lot. It took, oh, probably five, six years ago. Um, we finally surpassed the amount of breweries that we had pre-prohibition. So there was that many mm-hmm. local breweries that were all around that were making you know, these craft style beers for people to enjoy before prohibition wiped it out and the mass distribution and the American lagers for cheaper were, you know, were mass marketed. So I think we're kind of back to that point of where people support their local breweries, you know, and this is, you know, do you see, you know, a doubt, not, I want to say downfall, the bubble. Yeah. A bubble bursting eventually, uh, where the folks that aren't, whether it's the quality of the beer or this customer service, or they're not doing something that causes people to go, I don't want to go here, but I'm going to go to the other guy. Yes and no. I mean, I, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly that. Um, because I've, I, I've talked to people that go, well, I've been homebrewing for six months to two years, anywhere in between. You know, I, I kind of want to open up a home. I, I, I want to open my own brewery. And in, in, in the Twin Cities where we are, especially, I think, has an incredibly saturated market, which is great for me as a consumer mm-hmm. because I have all these options to go to. But I now have these kind of default places that I go to because I like their beer, I like this, I like that, and I like the other thing. The unfortunate, the, the unfortunate thing about... Um, <clears throat> You hate to burst anybody's dream, but a lot of people get into brewing thinking, well, it's going to be this glamorous. No, you're a glorified dishwasher with wet underwear all the time. I mean, you you work your ass off is what it boils down to. So there's, you know, I, I, I encourage someone who has that pipe dream, you know, I'm more than happy to welcome people into the brewery and see what kind of labor goes into into the beer so they know what they're getting into. Um, I think people have this. And I think it's fun as hell when, you know, somebody comes over, oh, yeah, we just opened up this brewery uh, over here in this city. Oh, cool. I'll come check you out. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's great. I I mean, I I love it. I mean, I, I love all the, you know, every brewery has its own story and, and everything that they do, it's none of them are the same. 
you know, I have my thing and and everybody else has theirs. Yeah. You know, and it's it's all different and it makes makes the beer what it is. And I I feel like, you know, for me, our thing is, you know, I like the local ingredients, I like the niche, you know, I like what I do, you know, I just I think that it makes good beer. And you I know? know prior to me working for you, I asked you, you know, what kind of witchcraft are you doing in the back that I, you know, that's what kind of attracted me to pitchfork beer is that it didn't taste like anything else I had prior. Yeah. It's, you know, you've got a lot of breweries out there that are, you know, and that's the thing with like when we're looking at, you know, our own equipment and things like that, I'm looking at customizing that equipment already to do what I do. So the beer tastes the same, you know, it's, you know, for me, it's a it's a big deal. I'm I'm I don't want to be a cookie cutter. This is what we are, and and there's people who really like what I do, and there's people who don't. You know, and that's okay. Yeah. I don't have any issue with that. I, you know, there's I've come across people like that. Oh yeah, I went to Pitchfork before. I'd be at a different brewery, and uh, well, everything kind of tastes like you know. There's pine in it. I go, nah, I don't taste same same yeah. thing that you do. But you know, hey, you know, not hats right. off to you. Everybody's got their own, you know, their own thing, and I don't, I don't begrudge that. Everybody's palates are different, and people, different strokes for different folks, you know. That's what it is. I, I have don't. gotten a little, <laughs> it's not even my brewery, but I have been a little insulted. I've had people walk in and go, well, I don't know, I only drink Coors, I only drink that, this, or the other thing. Yeah. Why don't you have a good, you know, insert American lager here on tap? It's like, because oh, some of some of us. Like our beer to taste like beer. Mm-hmm. Or they could go with the, one of your Pilsners and they could also go with the Rip Beer and have the same alcohol as one of the uh, Coors. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had people come in and like the, the well, the Pilsner comes in at what, three? No, no, it's four. It's four and a half. Four or and so. a half. Yeah. And people said it's too much for them. I know. And it's like, I, that's fine. I get it. Just don't, you know, don't insult us. That's all I ask. Yeah, I don't even. You gotta. I, I enjoy the bitter beer face. <laughs> yeah, you know you're just like that's entertaining me. Yeah, so you might want to try our rip beer, you know, or we have water, or you could go next door to Petty Ryan's and yeah. you could have a nice, really really cold bottle of, you know, thirst beer. Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Flavor suppression, cold. <laughs> Well, even uh, since you and Mike decided to put on the uh, Sand Creek Hard Lemonade on tap, mm-hmm. a lot of people have been coming back for that because their friends or their wives, you know, whoever, oh yeah, uh, have said, "Oh yeah, I really, I, I'm not a beer drinker, but I really like that." Yep. And then I tell them, you know, well, you know, technically it's a beer, and they're like, "What?" Yeah, uh, I had no idea. And I go, "Yeah." Oh, and, there's you know, there's lots of folks that come in, you know, because it's we we had a lot of you know. Not to generalize, but mostly husbands that are like, I can't get my wife to go here because they won't drink, you know. Well, now that they drink this, I can get her to come here, you know, kind of thing. So it works out. I mean, it's it's something for, you know, and we sell the crap out of it in the the summertime. I mean, it's... Oh, especially in the summertime. And the biggest drawback I've found, you know, just kind of poured beers for people. People like, can I get a growl? I'm like, yeah, I, I wish I could, but I can't. Yeah, no, you can buy it in the liquor store, and we only get it one keg at a time. So yeah. it's like, if you, you know how it is, you get that yeah. run on it, and you're, 
you know, it's like, oh, you'll empty our keg and we won't be able to get one for next week. And it's like, yeah, it's not really worth it. Have you ever thought about doing a hard lemonade fruit beer yourself? Mm-mm. No, I, I've <laughs> always, I've, uh, I've, I've done tons of ciders and stuff like that. Yeah. If they changed the law in Wisconsin, I would be thrilled to do ciders because I did a lot of ciders. I really liked them. Is it a pain in the neck to do, you know, this ciders year's standard beer? Well, what it say you want to do? But I want to do straight cider. I don't yeah. want to do barley-based ciders. Right. Which that lemonade is over 50%. That's the only reason we can have it is it's because it's, yeah. it's over 50% barley-based. Is there um, is there a, a big difference in the brewing process? Well, is it a pain in the neck as a brewer to be able to change that? Or is it just licensing? Um. Yeah, it's licensing. Okay, I already dealt with the homebrew law. I don't want to deal with anything. You know. So someone. Why? Else, I mean, you're self-employed. You have all this free time. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what I do. Yeah. Um, but no, it's uh, if you could, uh, you know, if if that law was changed to where even if they reclassified cider instead of being under the wine license. Uh, to the beer license, that'd be fantastic. Is there a reason why cider's under wine? Not- I think it's because it's fruit-based. Okay. That's the only real reason I can come up with. And I called the, you know, called the state about it, and they're like, oh, you could just change that. I'm like, I already went through this. You know, no, someone else can do this. <laughs> but, yeah, it'd be, you know, it'd be great, because they're easy to do, um, you know, and we could actually fix problems for other juice manufacturers, you know, because they get to a point of uh, there's only so many days that they can take fresh pressed cider and sometimes make what they've got. And they've got this like lag. We could take their juice and and totally ferment it out and make really good ciders out of it and, you know, be on our way cranberry ciders and pear ciders and all kinds of delicious things <laughs> so uh when are you doing a pitchfork sour hmm. <laughs> sours aren't your thing yeah. um, uh, no uh it's it's not that they're they're not my to, to go back so difference between just a brew that you get off tap versus sour What's the big? Well, for one, I've been spending twenty five years trying to keep bacteria out of my beer. Um, So now putting it into my beer is, I'm fine with that concept. I get it. Um, And there's a lot of them. Be a growing market with that. I know. I get it. It's a summer thing. Um, But uh, they they taste good. I get it. But some of the bacterias are pretty uncontrolled, Mm -hmm. and in the way that my brewery is set up, I'm opening too many fermenters. Everything's in there close. I could easily move a bacteria from one beer to another, and that would not be cool. Um, I'd lose a lot of beer doing that. Via airborne transition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or? there's a lot of the bacteria that are airborne in there. And the other thing about it is I, you know, I kind of like the whole traditional concept of doing sour, so it'd be nice to have, like, bacterias in barrels and... You know, and do them that way, in which case I'd need more room and separate equipment to do that. Is there a huge difference? Like, I've seen Kettle versus Berliner versus just, you know, they'll mark It's it the bacteria that are in there. I mean, and, and you know, a Berliner Vice is a little more controlled bacteria um, that goes in there that you can kind of, 
you know, kill off. But, you know, I use a lot of oh my the way that I transfer, the way that I keg, you know, all of that stuff is the same kind of equipment. I would want separate everything for all of that so I don't screw up any of my beer. Uh, so I remember uh, uh, for Homebrew Bound, there's the Ada Beer Challenge. And one of the beers involved, like, it was a style that involved putting a uh, tree branch in the beer. Mm-hmm. And it was like... It was like not what you, uh, not really what you want. No tree branches. No, no oh. tree branches at all. So, Mike, like you're saying, uh, you spent better part twenty years, twenty five years, you know, trying to make your beers not do that. Uh, despite you know, there's that market for sour beers, especially now. I'd say in the last three years, four years, it's been growing. Um, but somebody listening to this podcast now or later, and they want to. They're kind of on that fence of starting a brewery or they're starting their own business, if it's in a different realm or not. What would you tell them if they came to you? Um, well, I would, you know, honestly, I would say come to me. Like, um, I, I've i always been welcoming to, you know, other potential brewery startups or whatever. Come, Come see what I do. Come get an idea of how much work there is and which way you want to go with it. Um, I don't, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is exactly, you know, what it is, what I do, you know, and there's lots of different ways to go. And I can give you advice on what you're, you know, what you're, what you're thinking about too. But, but go to lots of places, you know, talk to everybody, whatever you think that, you know, kind of models after what you're thinking of doing. You know, get lots of advice. You know, it, I have been, um, I've had a lot of brewers that are starting up that have come, you know, through our place that have, you know, that I try to give as much information to. I'm, this is, to me, it's not a competition. You know, in between this brewery and that brewery, everybody's a little different. You got to kind of cut out and make your own. That's what a lot you know. of people ask me when Hoppin' Barrel was moving into downtown. People, oh, are you worried about the competition? I said, honestly, no. If anything, invites people to our side of the river. And that yeah. makes it kind of hard about, like, like we had discussed the uh, bubble earlier. And, like, it's kind of hard to define the bubble because the fact is, like, the craft brew market is growing still. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it has been a growing, you know, yeah, granite does... Uh, you know, hop and barrel coming coming in and the fact that there's all these different breweries, does that hurt our bottom line a little bit? Sure. You know, it does. But um in the in the in the long term, ideally we draw more as a community to this area to, you know, to come and try the beers of, you know, of this Wisconsin area because you know, there's not a lot going on in Woodbury, and like a lot of our customer base comes out of St. Paul. Yeah, you know that. Well, that especially St. Paul and Minneapolis. You throw a stone in any, any direction in the Twin Cities, you're going to land near a brewery. I can't tell you how many regulars we have from Lakeville to you know the west side of the cities. That you know, every brewery is different, and some you know sometimes they find their niche at our place. You know. Whether it's, you know, customer service or, you know, the the beer or whatever it is that keeps them coming back. And I'm glad they do, obviously. But it, it's, 
you know, every brewery has their own kind of offering, you know, and the more that we all embrace that and share it, the easier it's going to be in the community to, you know, for everybody to get along and share that whole, you know, that whole deal. All right. And where can people find Pitchfork Brewing? I know on the website, obviously, pitchforkbrewing.com. Mm, yeah, is that right? Facebook is. And Facebook. You know, Facebook. And you're in 40 some odd different. 40, about 46 different locations outside of, of our, you know, whether it's bars. liquor stores and bars. Yeah. Bars, um, restaurants, and liquor yeah, stores and everything yeah, yeah, they can find on there. Right. Where's the tap room then? Uh, we are off of exit four. We're on the uh, north side of it if you come into Wisconsin. So, um, yeah, exit four, you exit, go across the bridge, uh, you hit a stoplight. Uh, when you go across the bridge, um, take a left and go back into the, the um, you know, in the business district back there and you'll find us. Yeah, right next door to Patty Ryan's. Irish pub, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if yeah. somebody wants to come talk to you, yeah, you're there Wednesday nights. Wednesday, Wednesdays and Tuesdays. I mean, uh, you can always email me at mike at pitchforkbrewing.com if you have any questions about anything. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you can. I'm there. Um, I try not to be there on Fridays and Saturdays as much as possible, but I'm yeah, there every Sundays. other day. Yeah. On and Sundays, then, you're there. I'm brewing. Um, or yeah, I work the tap room on Wednesdays and Sundays, and of course, uh, 2 p.m. on Sundays. Yeah, if you want to get a free tour from Mike, uh, he gives you two 10 ounce pours as a consolation prize for listening to him rant about right. an hour or so. And uh, you're gonna learn everything that you need to know about the brew industry really more for the last 25 years and then some more. Probably <laughs> don't want to know, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a uh, Unless it's a decent tour. It's different than most tours. You know, I don't have a lot of big shiny to show people, but I can kind of tell people what, you know, I, I get into more of the science and the process. And truly, folks, from like I said before, uh, from my standpoint, I had no intention of bringing beer. I knew nothing about beer. At least you might give these tours at least 100 times by now. Uh, you, you start to pick up on a few things, and it's kind of interesting. And you learn the science behind the witchcraft that happens, if you will, the, you know, the man behind the curtain. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I, I love it. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's a good time. I mean, and again, it's fun to share, share it with people in the tours. And again, thank you, Mike, for coming down tonight. I, I really wanted to have you here because after hearing your story of where you came from, uh, you're kind of the epitome of the, you know, the the namesake for this podcast, Man in the Arena by Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, that really, it's you. <laughs> Given every reason to fail, every reason to drop out of school, but didn't and kind of, you know, it went on your own and fought for everything that you've built so far. And I thought that's, that was really cool. And after hearing that story for his first time, it's like, what is it going to take for you to say that again? But record it. <laughs> right. You need a good wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Well, then, in I that case, thank that. you, Jesse, for putting up with Mike. I, right. I just saw her post on Facebook not too long. Uh, what, 21, 22 years? Uh, yeah, 21 years. We were actually dated for seven years prior to getting married, so I wasn't so, sure. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what, 20 years combined now yeah, that you guys have known you cheating? Yeah. Oh, thank God for her patience. I know. Her we, can, we can communicate without using words now. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Well, again, thank you again, Mike, uh, for coming down and to listen to this podcast uh, episode and others by Blind Ninja Studios. Make sure to go to blindninjastudios.com. And you can download Rules of the Arena, Homebrew Bound, Department of Fence, and a handful of others. Uh, and make sure to check us out on Facebook, uh, Blind Ninja Studios. And, of course, uh, mine is Motivation, or the, the Arena Motivation. And you can find me on Instagram, Built in the Arena, uh, for all sorts of other things. Thanks again. See ya.